Welcome to the Sports Lodge, where sports, entertainment, and pop culture merge within the mind of your host, Roger Lodge. Hey, welcome to the Sports Lodge podcast, where today I want to devote an entire show to that wild and wacky world known as professional wrestling. And man, I will never forget watching wrestling as a kid out here in L.A. where I grew up. We had championship wrestling on KCOP Lucky Channel 13. Dick Lane was the announcer. Judo Jean LaBelle would interview the wrestlers between matches. And the legendary Jimmy Lennon served as a ring announcer. Every Saturday night from 8 to 10, I was mesmerized with guys like the big cat Ernie Ladd, the maniac John Tolis. Classy or not so classy, depending on what Saturday it was, Freddie Blassie. When they would enter that square circle, they put on a show. And when Andre the Giant burst on the scene in the 70s, forget it. But why are so many of us attracted to this wild entertainment that is nothing more than a show? The winner is predetermined before they even enter the ring. Why did I insist on attending wrestling events throughout the years and pay ridiculous amounts of money to sit front row at WrestleMania? Well, maybe my guest today can uh, make some sense of it all. Here he is, outstanding career in both sports and the entertainment industry. But a lot of you remember him not only from his days at ESPN hosting SportsCenter, but... Part of Vince McMahon's World Wrestling Federation, which of course is now known as the World Wrestling Entertainment. Trust me, this cat is pure entertainment. He's the man they call the coach, Jonathan Coachman. Coach, how are you? Man, I'm trying to figure out how long you're going to do this podcast before you finally have what I consider to be the greatest talker this side of the rock on your show. <laughs> and I think, you know what? He'll, 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 he'll come to his senses, and he'll want to have an extended conversation about all the things that you just said. Why do fans love it? Why do we get so into it? Why do we spend so much money and so much time, so much emotion? And those are all things that I love to talk about and try to educate people. Because understand, Rod, this is not a world that I ever thought about getting into. It was something I stumbled on, I backed into, and it has created this world for me that continues to this day that I never could have imagined how great my life would be professionally because of the WWE of pro wrestling. So because so when you're growing up in Kansas City, you weren't really a big wrestling fan, even though you had the great handsome Harley race doing the local circuit there, God rest his soul. Well, you got to remember now, when I was growing up in the late 70s, cable didn't even exist yet. So we, we actually, and, and it's hard for people to wrap their head around this, but we had to buy books to read about matches that happened, whether it was in New York at Madison Square Garden or out here in Los Angeles at the different arenas. And that's how we got our, our wrestling uh, information. And then when we got into the early 80s, when I was like six, seven, eight years old, then we started having a little bit of cable, the UHF channels, all these things that most millennials have no idea what we're talking about. But that's when I started uh, watching wrestling. And then Saturday night's main event, my dad was a United Methodist pastor. And for me to be allowed to stay up on Saturday night to watch NBC, I had to take a nap. 
in the afternoon because I had to get up for church the next day. And my dad used to talk about wrestling in his sermons about how he allowed his kids to watch and the reason that he allowed his kids to watch. So, yeah, growing up, yeah, I was a huge wrestling fan, but these guys were like, uh, they were like superheroes. They were like people that we couldn't even imagine because you couldn't see them. You couldn't touch them. You couldn't be around them because of where I came from, which was the middle of the country. And I was an hour and a half, two hours outside of Kansas City. So I couldn't even go to the events when I was that young because it was too far away from my house. But um, So, yeah, I, I loved wrestling, but my dream was always to be a sportscaster and, and go to Kansas City, and that was as far as I thought I would ever go. Let me go back to something that you brought up. Saturday night main event in the late 80s that would supersede. Imagine this. It would supersede Lorne Michaels' Saturday Night Live an NBC staple since the mid-70s. That's how wildly popular the WWE was at the time. Why do you think during that period where they're getting Saturday Night Live time slots, why was wrestling so gigantic with audiences everywhere? There's one name. And when I got to the WWE, and it's hard to believe, um, Rod, that in a couple of weeks, It'll be my 20-year anniversary of starting in the WWE. Wow. I can't even believe it's been that long. It, it, it's, it's just, it has flown by. But throughout my time, I've gotten to be around all the great names, all the great people, and wrestlers love to tell stories. I like to pride myself on being a great storyteller myself. But all the stories I've ever heard about the legends coming up and what made Vince McMahon a success and all the different ups and the downs, there's one name that it goes back to, and it's not Andre the Giant. Yes, he was a huge name. He's a name that most people have heard of, but it was Hulk Hogan. He was the guy. And when you're talking about Saturday night's main event, I used to dream and hope that in that 90 minutes, and it was only an hour and a half, that at some point Hulk Hogan was going to walk out and take on my favorite bad guy, whoever it was going to be. They used to call him the Golden Goose. And whenever Hogan would show up to an arena, they, they used to say uh, Chief J. Strongbow used to be one of the agents, and he would make sure the guys got there on time and, then, and those sorts of things. They'd go, oh, the Golden Goose has arrived. And he would get his own dressing room. He would get treated differently. And back then, that was okay because everybody knew he was the reason that they were making any money whatsoever. Now, that changed over the years because when I got there and you had guys like The Rock and Stone Cold and, and all these different guys, they didn't get their own dressing room. The Rock dressed with everybody else. So it changed over the years. But back in the 80s, it was Hulk Hogan and everybody else. Let me go back to you. So you kind of catch the acting bug and start doing some theater at McPherson College. You start broadcasting yeah. games for local uh, teams there. Uh, what attracted you to the entertainment side, and how did you end up at KMBC-TV in Kansas City? Man, I've always been, I, I guess, a, a, a performer. I've always enjoyed television. Sports has been, literally, it has been my life since I was a small kid. I can remember when I was seven, eight years old and having a conversation with my dad because I thought I was going to play in the NBA. My dad was smart enough to realize there's not going to be a whole bunch of 6'3 forwards that can't jump making it in the NBA, right? So 
so so he, he once asked me, if you can't play in the NBA, or I was also really good at baseball, he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, if I can't play it, I want to talk about it. But then I also loved movies and TV shows, and, and I knew the, the acting was, was something that I was drawn to as well. So when I got to, when I got to college, uh, at the end of every basketball season, I would be the, the head or the lead role in whatever production uh, our school was doing. So I did three years of whatever that spring thing was, I would be the lead role in it. So I, I really, really enjoyed it. I loved it. Um, and I was pretty good at it, I thought. And so when I started out of college, I went to Wichita for a very, very short period of time. And I'm very blessed, Raj, that in, in the Midwest, they share talent, right? So if you're covering Kansas State or Kansas or uh, Wichita State, if you send one reporter, they can do live shots for Kansas City and Wichita. Make sense? So there was a guy in Kansas City who was leaving to go to St. Louis. So I had done live shots at 21 years of age for the big KNBC channel in Kansas City. Now, this is a, this is a, a network or a channel that people go and they spend the rest of their careers there. It's a great station. And I got there when I'm basically 22 years of age. Now, I got there, and a month in, they sent me to Florida to do a three-part series on the WWF, which, as you said, has turned into the WWE. And because of that three-part series, the last night was the night that they came to Kansas City, and the WWF gave me tickets to go to the show, which ultimately uh, was kind of the reason I got to the WWE, and it was the night that, that Owen Hart fell from the rafters and uh, died instantly in the ring in, uh, at Kemper Arena in Kansas City. And I was about 20 feet away. I'd been in Kansas City maybe five or six weeks tops, and my whole world turned upside down over the course of the next 24 hours because of that moment. So now you go from KMBC TV there in Kansas City after the tragic death of Owen Hart. Now you're on Larry King's show giving updates on the whole situation, right? Well, I, I stayed up all night. I, and and what, I, what I believe saved my job is I had, I had a, uh, my briefcase. I gave it to my, um, to my photographer. He took it back to the station. I had a buddy with me. So when the event was over, and keep in mind, the event kept going. I said, hey, man, we got to go back to the station. i got to get my briefcase. I walked into the station, and I said, I think something happened out there tonight because nobody knew. The fans didn't know. And my producer at the time was like, are you kidding me? This is your job. You're there. I was the only reporter in the building, but I was in the building as a fan. And so basically I had to stay up all night. I almost got fired on the spot by my news director for not doing my job. And the next morning I was on Good Morning America. I did 16 radio interviews once people saw me on Good Morning America. And then that evening, as you just said, I was on Larry King Live. I I didn't sleep the entire night. I didn't sleep the entire day. And I literally fell asleep sitting on the set waiting for Larry King to start because they make you come on an hour early to make sure that everything is working correctly. So imagine me sitting in a newsroom and I'm dead asleep just sitting there waiting for this show to start because I hadn't slept in an entire day. And I was very fair. I, I, I told him what I saw. And every interview, I was fair to the WWE. And because of that, three months later, I get a phone call. And the very first SmackDown, which is now SmackDown Live, they had already booked it for Kansas City. 
well, they couldn't sell any tickets because obviously fans were a little bit gun shy because of what had happened in May. So they asked if they could bring Shawn Michaels to the, to the uh, station. If I would do a story, if I would tell people, Hey, it's okay to come back. It's, you know, uh, accidents happen. Tragedies happen, unfortunately. And that's, that was my first real introduction to an executive who would ultimately refer me to Vince McMahon and Kevin Dunn, who's the head executive producer with WWE. And that's how that relationship started. Tell me about the first time you were ever in the same room at the same time and met Vince McMahon. Well, I met him on his 54th birthday, which is August 24th is his birthday. I'll never forget it. Because uh, they had just offered me the job and still didn't know if I was going to be able to take it because the station in Kansas City was furious with me that uh, that I would even go out for an interview when I had a three-year contract with what we called no outs. And anybody that knows anything about the business, outs are basically clauses in the contract that allow you to leave if you meet one of those things, right? So I had no outs because I was so young. Why did I need an out? You know, I was I was green as grass. You know, I needed to be in Kansas City for four or five years. So, uh, essentially, I went out to the arena. I still didn't have the job yet. And one of the guys took me in to meet Vince. And I'm telling you, the word intimidation is the first word that comes to my head when I think of of Vince McMahon. Now, I've been around him literally a thousand times in 20 years. He trusts me. He likes me. There's many things I've done for him that he's asked me to do that I was happy to do because he trusts me. But even to this day, he's one of those men that is rare in this world. And I don't, I don't think there's very few human beings that are made this way. He's just different. And I tell people all the time, it's hard to describe Vince McMahon other than he's different. He's scared of nothing. He's scared of no one. The only people that he has to answer to is God and the tax man. And we're not real sure if he has to answer to the tax man or not. <laughs> so, I mean... Think about that where you don't have to think about paying a bill. Again, this is now. Early on, he had to think about paying bills because there were stories where you talk about it could have gone either way, whether or not the company was going to succeed or he was going to go under and owe millions, tens of millions of dollars. And when I looked at him and I look at him today, I think about everything that I've learned, uh, the human being that I've turned into, how tough I am when it comes to dealing with people but fair. Uh, what do I expect from people uh, back towards me and what I expect out of myself to give to people that I deal with in a professional manner, but also in a personal manner. All those things I learned by being around Vince McMahon. Give me the biggest public misconception about the man in charge of the WWE, Vince McMahon. That all he cares about is the company and nothing else. That he doesn't care about the individual, that he doesn't care about the human being. Um, I'm telling you right now that if you were a CEO, I, I would hope that Vince McMahon would run a clinic or run a convention or run a weekend where you could go and learn how to be a CEO from Vince McMahon. And what I mean by that is this. I've never been around a human being um, that is able to put things behind them better than Vince. He had, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin famously walked away two or three times. Vince understood that Stone Cold was good for business. And Stone Cold let his uh, emotions get the best of him a couple of times. So they worked things out, and Stone Cold came back, and that was the right thing to do for business. He understands that people are emotional. 
And sometimes you're going to do, do things that you're going to regret maybe a day or two down the line. And most companies, most CEOs, Rod, they're so stubborn and show, so short-sighted that they go, nope, nope, he called me this or he called me that. I'm never working with them again. And Vince is so compassionate when it comes to those sorts of things that if you fight with him, and I've had some monumental fights of things where he, you know, maybe I didn't want to do what he asked me to do, and, and I would disagree with him. And we would yell at each other, and then the next week we're hugging it out, and you would never know in a million years that we had had an issue the week before. But when you're talking about big-time business, you're talking about big-time wrestling when there's testosterone running rampant, uh, you're going to have disagreements. You're going to butt heads. And Vince has always been able to keep putting one foot in front of the other, and most people don't understand some of the things that he has done, and I think he is a great leader because of that. Because you can't always think about every decision that you make. Not everybody's going to agree with you. How many times, Raj, have you made a decision, you're like, man, this person's not going to like me, but this person is, so i got to figure out, how do I make everybody like me? And you can't make decisions like that as a leader. You've got to make a decision that you think is the best for the organization, for the situation, and that's what Vince does. And he doesn't apologize for it. And if he makes a mistake, guess what he's willing to do? He's willing to change it. And that's what most human beings are not willing to do, is change a decision that they make because they think it makes them look weak. Vince knows that it's the right thing to do. And that's how I've incorporated things in my life and decisions that I've made because we dictate how we live our lives. And guess what? A week or two down the road, nobody remembers the bad decision you made as long as you keep making good ones and moving forward. And people get so caught up in the moment instead of looking at the big picture. So, Jonathan Coachman, you are on record here on the wildly popular Sports Lodge podcast saying that Vince McMahon truly cares about his performers. 100%. 100%. And uh, very few people know that there are these things called legends contracts. Think about um, if you're Kamala, the Uganda giant, or if you're uh, whoever, can you go get a job when you're done and you're only 50 or 55 years old? How do you earn money? How do you, you can't walk in and work at a 7-Eleven. You can't be an accountant. It's a very unique uh, world. And, so he will have them, he'll pay them a, a small amount of money, enough to survive and live off of, and in return they make appearances whenever uh, they call these, these legends. And he doesn't have to do that. The NFL doesn't do that. The Major League Baseball doesn't do that. But he does, and it's a very quiet thing. Uh, he doesn't publicize it. But if you've been loyal to him over the years, and even if you haven't, he's still willing um, to take care of you in some manner uh, of speaking. Coach, one of the very first guys they hooked you up with was The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. What do you remember most about your interactions, your early interactions with The Rock? I know that my very first time, um, it was January 8, 2000, because I was not allowed on TV for WWE until I had left KNBC in, in, in Kansas City. And what I remember and what I take with me to this day about uh, the man who's become the biggest star in the world is that he's always giving. And is he protective of his brand? 
of being the rock and being Dwayne Johnson, no question. You can't become successful and not be that way. But all I know is that my first night, he did this. He said to me, I've got this idea. Because we've been doing for several months, maybe over a year, where he would ask somebody, whoever it was, you know, what's your name? It doesn't matter what you're, you know. And he had all these things. because I want to throw the crowd off a little bit. And at the same time, I want them to know your name. So I'm sitting in this room. And I had been around it for a couple of months, right, because I was still traveling. I just hadn't been on the air yet. And he said, I want you to ask me a question. I'm, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to say, who in the world are you? He goes, I want people to think you're smart, too. You've been watching the product. Because a lot of times these guys can't, and girls would come off as stupid. Because if you were watching the show, you would know that The Rock's going to yell at you. So why would you answer him? You know what I mean? Sure. So all these things went in his mind. These are things that he thought of. He didn't have to. Certainly the fans didn't care if he let some no-name young reporter, interviewer, uh, get over. And so I said, so we started the interview. I was To say I was nervous would be an understatement. <laughs> and, I mean, it was amazing. And so I said, Rock, uh, and I started my question, whatever the question was, and he stops me, puts his hand up, and he goes, who in the blue hell are you? And I don't say anything. And he looks at me and goes, it's okay. I know you know what, the, what you think The Rock is going to do, but you can answer me. It's okay. I promise. I won't do that. I said, well, uh, my name is Jonathan Coachman, but everybody calls me the coach. And so he proceeds to say, the coach of what? The coach of a little girl's softball team? The coach of a gymnastic? You know, the coach of the coach. So he says the coach eight to ten times probably. And then at the end, he goes, before The Rock continues, why do they call you the coach? Well, now I'm comfortable because I think we're buddies, right? So I go, well, Rock, it doesn't matter why they call you the coach. <laughs> so he did it at the end instead of at the beginning, and which was, it was incredibly giving to do. Because in our world, um, it's all about how much you're willing to, to give and still protect your spot, right? Well, he was so comfortable with his spot he knew he was the biggest star. He knew he was the greatest talker. He knew that if he gave a little bit to me, that ultimately we could build that relationship where I was his guy, that every week he could have fun with me on the air, and that would ultimately help his character. And that's exactly what it did. I walked out of the arena that night. You know, fans go to the back of the arena. They're screaming and yelling and all those sorts of things. And it was, Coach, 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 after one interview. But he said my name many, many times. And I've never forgotten that. And I will always uh, be grateful to him, not just for how he treated me, uh, how he was always willing to get me over, but what he taught me as far as timing is concerned, um, understanding uh, placement in a show, understanding volume, how to bring your voice down, how to bring your voice up, how to punctuate words, all those little things that fans at home don't think about that makes a great promo, that great, uh, makes a great talker, ma makes a great storyteller. There's so many little things. I like to say I work really, really hard, and The Rock does too, at making things look really, really easy. Does he have a talent? Yeah. Is, is, is it unique? Is he, does he have the it factor? Yes. But, damn it, he works hard at it, and he thinks about it 24-7. And you have to be consumed by it. If you want to be at that level, or even the level that I've gotten to, on some level, 
you have to be consumed by it day and night. It's amazing as you're telling me that story, Coach. I'm thinking in my head about a time that when I was working on a show called Hard Copy, and I they, they called me one afternoon and said, okay, listen, you get five minutes with Howard Stern tomorrow, so you got to go down to where he's doing his show, and they'll give you five minutes with Howard. So I get on the air, and like like you with The Rock for the first time, I'm a young, snot-nosed punk reporter. I got to go interview the biggest star in media at the time, Howard Stern. And we start talking a little bit, and I'm thinking I'm going to be funny, and I'm going to ask his, uh, you know, his co-host. I'm going to ask Robin out for lunch. So as I ask, (laughs) so I'm asking Robin uh, out for lunch, and Howard chimes in. He cuts me right off, and he says. Let me tell you something, you Desi Arnaz Jr. lookalike. And he, so he's referring to me as a Desi Arnaz Jr. lookalike. The next day, he has a book signing in Westwood. So when I approach to go in to interview him at the book signing, there's literally 5,000 people lined up around Westwood uh, waiting to get their book signed by Howard Stern's, uh, in the name of the book was Private Parts. It was a smash hit. As I approach, oh, yeah. as I approach the venue, there's a quiet Desi, 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 <laughs> and as I get closer and closer, I got five thousand people chanting my name, Desi. Howard knew exactly what he was doing when he referred to me as a Desi Arnaz Jr. lookalike because it put him on hard copy and it put it on a whole bunch of other shows. But he was willing to have me come in, be part of the joke. It's kind of what you went through with The Rock. A hundred percent. And I think of all the celebrities you've been around in your amazing career and the ones that I've been around in my career, I ran into so many that limit themselves because they don't think, how does this collectively help the group? But how does it help me at the end? And all they usually think about is, how does it help me? And if you're not helping the group or helping somebody else, ultimately you're going to come off as selfish. You're going to come off as conceited. You know, and so, Howard was able to come off as a jerk, but also making fun of you made you cool no matter what he called you. Yes, right? yes. It was like it was like it, it was like getting insulted by Don Rickles. Yes, yes. And I wish more entertainers could look at people like Howard Stern or like The Rock or like whoever and say, "Listen, if I'm able to give up a little bit, man, I'm going to get back a lot." I got to bring this up because you t- you mentioned it when you refer to The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. You called it the it factor that he has. Coach, I used to work at an Italian restaurant up in Bel Air off of Mulholland Drive. And when I say everybody used to come into this small, almost secluded eatery, I mean everybody came in this restaurant. And one night, I'll never forget it as long as I live, John Travolta came in. And you could hear silverware drop. Good looking, charming. He had that thing. He had that charisma. He had the it factor. You can't teach it. Either you have it or you don't. Is The Rock the single most charismatic cat you've ever been around? Uh, it's not close. It's not close. It is, it is so amazing. And I've told people who I get asked more about the rock than anybody. And it's because we were on so much together, but most people just look at the rock as the rock and they don't look at, I look at him as a person who put in 
I mean, his entire day was he, he was like, I go to the gym from 10 to 12. I have to eat a chicken breast at 1 o'clock, another one at 3.30. I take my this at this time because everything led, led up to being in the main event. And it's kind of like being the best quarterback if you're Tom Brady or being the best uh, if you're LeBron James, the preparation that goes into the performance. But he was able to he, – he's so in the moment, and he was so relaxed. I'll never forget, you know, one of the nights – it was my best night uh, in San Diego. He'd already left, and he came back for one night. And it was me and uh, Eugene, who I just fought a couple of weeks ago, in fact. But he wanted to do something with us. And I'll never forget, he gave me the rock bottom. And as I'm in the air, he says, he takes me up in the air. He goes, great effing segment. Slams me, looks down and says, great bump, too. And then he keeps going. And I'm like, he was, he's just so in the moment. And his charisma just oozes. And I've, I've heard people that have actually had the audacity to say, the rock is too arrogant. Or the, the, the rock is too this or that. Well, they only see The Rock when he's in front of a camera. Because guess what? Not only is he making money for himself, but now he has 40 people that he has to, to pay full-time salaries to. And that's the pressure that he's taking upon himself. When he's in front of the camera, he's The Rock 90% of the time. And that is himself turned up 10 or 20 times. But when he's not that guy, he's just a really funny, cool dude who was a football player in college who – just wanted to make it, had no money like every other college kid when they get out and said, how do I do it? And he worked his butt off. But, yes, his charisma got him, his looks got him to the plate. But, man, does he have to swing the bat to hit home runs. And he hits them every single time, which is why I think – I don't know if there's a person, because when he got to Hollywood, uh, Raj, most people don't know this, but when he did the, the movie The Rundown, with Sean William Scott. And Sean William Scott is tiny. I mean, tiny. And so Rock looked like a monster next to him. And I'll never forget that his agents told him, you got to lose weight. You got to be smaller. And he bought into it. So he's going on all these crazy diets. He's trying to lose weight instead of remembering what got him to the party. So even The Rock is not uh, removed from making calculated mistakes. But you're new in Hollywood. You're getting these big acting gigs. I think we've all worked for people that said, you need to do this. And we're like, wait a second, but that's not really who I am, right? That's not who The Rock was. So then he gets this big tattoo that he's got on his body. And for two hours a day, he would sit from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. getting the tattoo covered in makeup. And one day he said to himself, wait a second, I'm getting all these big jobs. Who cares if I have this Samoan tattoo? That's who I am. I can now spend these two hours a day working out and becoming shredded and becoming the rock again because that's what got me to the dance, and I want to dance. So when he stopped catering to what every other executive was saying and said, whoever wants to roll with me, you're going to roll with Dwayne Johnson, the rock. And if you don't want to roll with me, guess what? You don't have to, but you're going to be the one on the sideline. And guess what? There's a lot of people that are regretting that decision now that he's gone the way that he wants to do it, and he dictates everything. He, he, you know, he's got five movies always going. He's always going from one to another to another. An amazing group of people that work for him that would run through a wall. 
So when he shows up to tape Ballers for HBO or Fast and Furious or Jumanji or whatever it is, when he shows up, they're ready to roll tape. And that is a very, very difficult thing to find. And he has perfected it, which is why he's able to put three or four movies out every single year. First couple now, of times. Question. Go ahead. First time you ever worked with The Rock. Did you think he was going to be the biggest box office draw in the world? No, no, because everything I knew about actors was the big actors are tiny and big people don't make it in Hollywood, right? Andre the Giant had been in The Princess Bride as a freak show. Hulk Hogan had done a couple of movies. You know, he had been, what was he in Rocky, Rod? Thunderlips. Thunderlips, yes. <laughs> you know, he was the, the big guy that was too big for Rocky to fight and just tossed him around like a rag doll. But could you ever see Hulk Hogan as a leading man? <laughs> the, the answer was no back then. So the answer I would give you is no. And that's, that's the story I just told. Is He fought that for, for several years because guess what? Executives in Hollywood are just like executives in the sporting world. They took so long to change. And it's one thing that I'm, I'm still pushing and I'm passionate about right now, that we have to change how we think about what's always been done and how we do it. And The Rock, has he, he just won some award for MTV at the MTV Movie Awards, and he said it best there. He said, when I became the most successful form of myself is when I decided I was going to be myself, and this is who I am. And that's what I tell people all the time. I'm not ever going to be the traditional sportscaster that you're going to get for golf or boxing or any of the things that I do. Are you going to get somebody who's unique, who's going to bring a lot of energy to the table and can sit in a room with this executive or this female or this kid or this whoever and be comfortable and make them comfortable too? And I learned that from him. Coach, you just gave me chills. Do me this favor repeat only the words that Rock said, the Rock said when he when he received that award. What did he say again? He said, when I became the most successful form of myself is when I decided just to be myself. Coach, I kicked around Hollywood for 13 years, okay, going on auditions. I couldn't even get a call back to save my life. I was so frustrated. So depressed. I went to my parents' house one Sunday late morning, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. I hadn't done anything. I couldn't get arrested in this town. I'm sitting in the back in the patio with my late great stepfather, the great Bob Lodge, former power forward out of Washington State. And we're talking about my career that's just in the toilet. And he looks across at me and he gets that serious look on his face that he used to get. And he leaned in and he said to me, I know you're going on all these auditions to play characters. Have you ever thought of trying to just simply be yourself? Two, wow. week, two weeks later, I screen tested for an old dating show called Change of Heart. And then two weeks after that, I stumbled into America's number one dating show, Blind Date. Why? Because I decided to just be myself. It's the best piece of advice you can give anybody in this industry. It's so hard, though, right? It took uh, somebody who you, you used to see all the time, right? 
to, to be honest with you. Yes. Because most people won't be honest with you. Right. I mean, yeah, I said it was the Rock's agents. Why were they? Why were the agents telling the Rock that? Because they wanted to make the most money for them. They weren't looking out for him. And you know, your family had to tell you had to tell you that. And that's part of the reason I don't even have an agent anymore, because I I actually represent two of my buddies. And the reason I do it, and the reason they asked me to do it, is because they know that I care about them, and I want to get them the best deal possible, and I want them to be successful because. Rod, you just said it. This industry may be the most rewarding, but also the most difficult to get in, stay in, and be in of any industry in the world. What was harder for you, getting into show business or staying in show business? Uh, it hasn't been hard staying. Um, I mean, I was very lucky, and, and, I'm, I'm, and I understand that. I mean, I, I got the, the, the WWE gig when I was 22 years old. So, so I know so many people struggle. like, oh, I didn't get my big breaks. I was 30 or 35 or, or maybe even 40. My biggest struggle was when the one lady who believed in me got me to ESPN. Her name is Lori Orlando. And I would run through 10 walls for her to this day. And she became the senior vice president of talent at ESPN. And the hiring decisions were hers and hers alone. And that's how I got there. But for years and years and years, and to be honest with you, if I'm being 100% honest, it's the reason I left after 10 full years, is that I was the, I was, I was the rock stand-in, so to speak. I was able to do first take 50 times. I did Mike and Mike 50 times, and, but I was never able to be the leading man. I would stand in for the leading men, and I would pitch my own shows a million times, and I was good enough to do the big shows, wasn't good enough for them to invest in me uh, as the guy. And when they decided to give a couple of shows that are on the air right now, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, tell you what shows they are. People watch ESPN. I think you can figure it out. And I said, they're going to give those dudes a show. And I've done every big show here and I can't get mine. And that's when I said, you know what? I'm going to start doing the things that I've always wanted to do. And this is also a story I've never told. Two years in, I only had a two-year contract. One of the guys who's actually in charge of Sports Center today, today, if you want to look it up, they can look up his name. And he was in charge of negotiating contracts. He cut my salary by $60,000 because he hated the fact that a WWE guy had been hired. And he was so, uh, the, the, being on Sports Center is so sacred. We can't have a sports, uh, a wrestling guy do it. God forbid, Raj, it doesn't matter if I'm good enough or talented enough or entertaining enough. He did pro wrestling, so we can't have him here. So he waited until 10 days before my contract was up and offered me a $60,000 pay cut, hoping that I would walk out the door. So on the day my son was born was the day that my contract was up. So I signed for two years, $120,000 pay cut. To say I was furious would be an understatement. Unbelievable, so, man. Correct. But I also believe this, that you don't overreact and you pick and choose your spots. So I did that. I didn't overreact. I didn't show up to work mad every day. I didn't tell everybody that story. And three or four months in, uh, he got moved out of his spot because he had so many bad experiences with talent that they realized, wait a second, got to move this dude out of here right now. And this is the same dude 
who was responsible for negotiating the current NBA deal, the current NFL deal, and I believe is a single human being who's responsible for over 500 people being laid off there because those deals were so bad. And again, you want to look up the name, it wouldn't take you long, you can't. They moved him out of negotiating contracts. The guy they moved in, I was the first appointment that he made. Walked in, took my contract, and said, this is what this dude did to me. He goes, man, this is VF. I said, I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he says, he says, Coach, he said, I can't just hand you a $120,000 check. He said, but what I can do is your next deal, we'll negotiate, and I'll add $20,000 to the end of it. And over the course of five to six years, because you go there thinking that's going to be your last gig. At least most people do. You think you're going to be at ESPN for 20 or 25 years, hopefully. And so he was a man of his word. He did exactly what he said he would do. And when I walked out the door at ESPN, God, almost two years ago now, my, my salary was right where it should have been if I would have made the natural progression up the ladder as far as um, the raises are concerned. You know what I mean? Sure. And so now that guy is the AD at Syracuse, and he had a 30-year career at ESPN, and he's another guy that if he called me up, anything he asked me to do, I would drop it and I would go because he's a gentleman, he's a class act, and he's a man of his word. And I only want to be around people that are like that now. And I know that. And I've been around long enough to realize what I do want, what I don't want, and that's what I want. Great stuff from Jonathan Coachman here. And, Coach, of course, we started out talking wrestling and your career in the WWF, which became the WWE, and your relationship with The Rock. Let me go back to some wrestling stuff here quickly. You also were involved with another big name, and that would be the son's, or excuse me, that would be the boss's son, Shane McMahon. (laughs) Tell me about that experience and how carefully did you have to watch your P's and Q's working with the boss's kid, Shane McMahon? I'll never forget. It was 2003, and I was working out in the gym at our headquarters in Connecticut, and Vince came up to me and And Vince always wanted his backstage interviewers to be really small to make the guys look really big. And if you watch it to this day, it's mostly females now um, and maybe the occasional guy, but most of the time it's females. And he came up and he says, Coach, you're just too big. He says, you're too big. Uh, I would have to spread my legs to make guys look taller. There was one time I was interviewing a tag team, and we were going to have a fight scene, and the camera guy, uh, he came out of the shot too quickly, and it showed me doing almost complete splits to make this team look bigger than what they were. So, you know, so he had had it. He had had it. He says, we got to come up with something. because we had an idea the other day. But you're going to have to be willing to train to learn how to work. And when, when I say work, it's what we call learning how to bump, uh, take body slams, wrestle. That's what we call working, okay? So he said, if you're willing to do that, I think we can do some really cool stuff. We can – no longer have you do interviews, but you can be a character. And I said, okay. And so I started to train, and, and behind the scenes, nobody knew I was doing it. So the first storyline was Eric Bischoff, who used to run WCW in the 90s. He came to WWE, and he started getting in a storyline with Shane McMahon, the boss's son. So 
So ultimately, they had a match at SummerSlam 2003. So about four or five weeks prior to this match, I started showing up anywhere that Eric Bischoff would be and interviewing him for whatever reason. The reason we did that was so people would get used to me see, get used to seeing me around Eric and not suspect that something was going to happen out of the ordinary. Now, there had never been an announcer interview of any kind make the transition to being a character, a heel, or a babyface and get in the physical scrum and do physical things. That had never been done before. So that was another reason why I wanted to do it. I thought it would be cool, and I could make history doing it. So we get to Phoenix, Arizona, and why in the world they'd schedule SummerSlam in Phoenix in August is beyond <laughs> But we did. We did. And there was a show called Sunday Night Heat that was our pre-show that I was the analyst for. So we're outside of the America West Arena, and I am sweating my butt off. And on top of that, I'm nervous as hell because I know what's coming. And I'm like, if I don't do this correctly, it could be the first and last night that I get to do anything like this, plus my career could be over. That's, that's the kind of pressure I was putting on myself. So the match comes, and the time comes for Eric to roll um, Shane McMahon out of the ring. And I'm sitting on a steel chair, and I hear Jr. go, oh, there's that coach again. Oh, coach, he's been showing up everywhere that Eric's been. He's so that cocky, he just follows him everywhere. And as soon as Shane goes down the ground, I stand up, and I close the steel chair, and I'm like, this is it. I'm about to blast the boss's son with a steel chair three or four times. And I hear some kid in the front row goes, what the hell is coach doing? <laughs> and it was almost like that was my cue. And I just blasted him four times with a steel chair. And, Raj, it was the greatest feeling I've ever had. The place went bananas. They couldn't believe what they were watching. And then out comes Stone Cold Steve Austin to the rescue of Shane McMahon. They rolled me back in, and I went from, man, this is the greatest feeling I've ever had to all of a sudden I take a boot to my kidney and I couldn't breathe. And if anybody's ever had those times where you're, you're, all of a sudden you get hit and you can't breathe, it went beyond that. I'm talking 15, 20 seconds, I could not breathe. And the thought went through my head, this is how it ends. My life ends right here, right now. I'm not kidding. That's what I thought. I could not breathe. Then, of course, my breath comes back. And we continue to scrum, and they're beating me up. And when I got done, I went to the back, and everybody's cheering for me. And I was like, the first thing I ever did was Shane McMahon and Stone Cold Steve Austin, and I nearly died in the process. <laughs> and that was the first time that I ever did that. <laughs> Coach, for you as a performer, to be out there in the center of the squared circle or even off of the, you know, off of the canvas, to have – 20,000 people cheer you or boo you. What's that like? Um, it's awesome. It's, you know, the few times, I mean, the, the time with Eugene and the Rock was the time that I, I, I really, for the first time, knew what it felt like to be the Rock and all those nights and why, if you see any of his, um, of his interviews the last few years, the reason he came back a couple of times, you can't manufacture that feeling. It's hard to describe what your body feels like 
when the crowd is going bananas or, you know, the rock starts calling you a popcorn fart and the whole crowd is yelling popcorn fart, popcorn fart, (laughs) whatever it is. And you're like, Oh my God, this is literally for this moment in time, these 20,000 people are yelling something at you, whether it's cheering, whether it's booing, whatever it is, that means you're doing your job correctly in the most difficult business and company to perform in in the world. And so there were, there's been many times where I've, I've said to myself, yes, there's been times where I've questioned my talent. I think everybody does that in this business at one time or another or ten times or another. But when you have those magical, magical moments and those magical nights where it all comes together, I, I, it just, it's hard to describe the feeling that goes on in your body. And I wish everybody could feel that one time in their life because it, it, it's almost like, I hate to use this analogy, but it's almost like people that get addicted to drugs. It's why they go back over and over and over because they want that feeling again. It's a feeling that you want over and over and over again. And I'm very blessed to have had it many times in my career. And if I never get, get it again, I've been blessed to be able to be a part of it and just experience it uh, throughout the last several years. And let's just say you were never able to experience again. When you leave God's green earth, whenever that is, give me the one visual from your time in a wrestling arena, the one still frame that you'll take with you forever. The one I'll take with me forever, the best moment I think that I've ever saw, uh, I was not a part of. I was a small part of it, but it was it was watching my childhood meaning Hulk Hogan, and my reality at the time uh, and my contemporaries, and that was The Rock, when they finally got to fight in Toronto in front of whatever it was at the Sky Dome. And I'll never forget watching uh, the brilliance of The Rock. And when people go back and watch that match, they stood there for 10 minutes, and the crowd was just coming, and it was coming, and it was coming. And when you're when the, the brightest lights come on, and I'm talking about WrestleMania in the main event, and you work so long to put something together, and then all of a sudden the crowd doesn't do what you expect them to do. Now, most people would just go along with the crowd, and it would just be a, a, com- a complete cluster. But The Rock was so in the moment that he didn't realize he was going to be the heel and, the, and that Hogan would be the babyface. So they were both huge babyfaces. And I, it, was, it was one of maybe two or three times in my career that I went out onto the floor, and The Rock and I had just had an interview backstage where he made me get down on my knees, say my prayers, tell me if, if I was eating my vitamins, everything that Hogan had been about, right? And, and he said, I want you to say a prayer to God. And I said, what up, G? He goes, what up, G? You're calling God G? You know, we did that whole thing. And so I went out and I stood there, and I watched this magic for 45 minutes and Hogan has three moves. And I realized you don't have to be the greatest wrestler. You don't have to fly off the top rope. If you can tell a story and tap into people's emotions, that's what this business that I've been so lucky to be a part of for 20 years is all about. And standing there and watching these two from my eight year old year to my current self, that's the image that I'll take away of the brilliance of The Rock and also Hogan to be smart enough to follow him and the crowd that got to be there in attendance. 
um, they'll never forget that as long as they live. I'm wa- it's just amazing because I've watched that match so many times, and at the very end when The Rock, you knew he was about to pin Hulk Hogan, and you could almost just shift you could feel the shift of momentum in the not only in the sport, in the entertainment, in the whole business from Hulk Hogan to The Rock, right? Well, and you also have to remember that, um, you know, famously, uh, Brett the Hitman Hart, when he walked away in the 90s, he didn't want to give up his, his, his title. Right. And what, Ho- what Hogan was willing to do, and this is hard for people who have huge egos, who are big stars, it's hard to say, you know what, the right thing to do is to pass this torch and to look at that moment and say, I am lucky, A, to be alive, to be in this moment, and I'm lucky to have been a big enough star that I can pass this torch on to arguably the biggest star that's ever lived in The Rock. And people are going to argue that, and it, it is what it is. But to be willing to do that, it's not about who wins and loses. It's about telling the right story and doing what's right for the business. And if you've done it enough times, then it's not going to matter. When people think back to that match, they don't know who won. They don't remember who lost. Because at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. What matters was their egos and their brands and their fans from 25 years got to be together for one night together. And it was just awesome. And what a lot of people probably don't remember about that match is at the end, after The Rock won it, he insisted that Hogan come back in the ring and take his bow. Who do you think made that decision? I, I'm, I'm quite sure that he made that decision because The Rock is all about the history of it. You know, his father was a great wrestler at one point, uh, grandfather, his entire, his entire family. Uh, he's got cousins that are still wrestling to this day. Uh, at his core, uh, The Rock is a pro wrestler. Now, he had dreams of doing bigger and better things because the one thing that a lot of people do is they stay in this business too long, and especially the wrestlers, which is why they end up having issues with uh, concussions or whatever the negative aspects of the business are, and they don't prepare themselves for doing something else. The one thing I always said in my first 10 years was always prepare myself so I can leave and be at the same level financially and also uh, perceptual-wise. And that's what I did. Did I get a little bit lucky? Sure. But that's who The Rock was. And he's always going to respect the guys who came before him because if there was no Hulk Hogan, you best believe this, that The Rock never would have made a tenth of the money. And there's a very good chance that there wouldn't have been a WWE for The Rock to perform in. Would there have been a company? Probably somewhere. But without Hulk Hogan to pave the way for those first 10 years, Vince McMahon doesn't get out of the starting box. He doesn't invent WrestleMania. Those things never happen without Hulk Hogan. So I guarantee you that was The Rock's decision to say, hey, listen, we can just fight for 45 minutes, but I respect you because all of us, should be looking at our bank accounts just like the NBA does with Michael Jordan, just like uh, golfers do with Tiger Woods and say, thank you for allowing me to make the living that I make now. Coach, before you leave me, let me throw some names at you and tell me about maybe an experience you had with them or just simply what comes to mind. Let me start with Hulk Hogan. Um, 
my childhood hero. Um, couldn't believe it the first time that I got to be around him. And just two weeks ago, he asked me if if I ever age, which I thought was a great compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that meeting Hulk Hogan for the first time was an underrated experience in your life or overrated? I would say it was underrated because he was the guy for me. He was, he was bigger than life and, and he could always take me back to being a kid and very few things can do that for any of us, but he was the guy. So very underrated. I didn't know I would feel the way that I felt watching him. Cause I think about all the nights that they've been a part of, right? I think about all the great fights, the WrestleMania. That's what I think when I meet somebody and when I met the rock, it was different because The Rock was a contemporary. The Rock was doing it as I got there, and I got to watch greatness grow right before my very eyes. Hogan had already been great. He was who he was, he was going to be, and he was never going to be bigger than that. For The Rock, it was different. Next name is Rowdy Roddy Piper. Great talker. Uh, fun to be around. Uh, very, very humble in person and loved to perform because he got to turn it up. Andre the Giant. Never, unfortunately, got to be around him, but he's the guy I think of for allowing Hulk Hogan to body slam him. And the stories that I've heard, because I've been around uh, Timmy White, used to drive him around, told us all these great stories about how Andre the Giant, they'd drive him around in a van, and they would take out uh, the, the front seat in the van so he'd have all that space, and he would drink at least a case of beer every single day because he was in so much pain just to get through the day. Um, he, he was not a happy person because it's hard to live that way. It just is. And, uh, but he was an incredibly nice human being, and the stories are legendary. John Cena. One of my favorite human beings in the world. Uh, I got to travel with him for six months. Uh, incredibly talented, um, incredibly compassionate, and I think uh, he's getting everything that he deserves right now. Kurt Angle. Uh, the, the greatest performer uh, that I've ever seen in the ring. Certainly the best to adapt to go from being a great amateur wrestler, winning a gold medal in the Olympics, to adapting to the professional world. Uh, but nobody had better matches than Kurt Angle, the, the best I've ever seen. Ric Flair. My guy. My guy, uh, as many as many ups uh, as a human being could have, uh, as many downs as a human being could have, uh, saw him two weeks ago, and um, he hasn't changed. He's 70 years old, and he is going to die at 70-whatever, 80-whatever, the way he lived when he was 35. He's not going to apologize for it. Um, and, and I wish I could be a little bit more, a little bit, not a lot, a little bit more like Ric Flair. Stephanie McMahon. Uh, incredibly powerful businesswoman. Uh, has always been respectful to me. And uh, they don't care about anything other than uh, growing a business, taking care of people. Um, cancer is their, is their big charity because they want kids who are the core of this business. And I truly believe she has three of her own that kids mean the world to her. Uh, and I've always been impressed with, with how she's evolved from just being a character as a member of the McMahon family to now being a very, very well-respected executive uh, in the entertainment and professional world. 
Shawn Michaels. Uh, maybe the greatest all-around performer of all time. Um, a guy who, who transformed from being uh, admittedly a very, very flawed individual into somebody that young performers now look to uh, to train. And um, I just really, really enjoy him as a human being. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, we had a moment last week in Tampa two weeks ago um, that I never thought we would have again. Um, he showed me how he has evolved as a human being. Uh, there is no question he's one of the top three superstars of all time. Uh, he's made more money for the company than anybody else, and it's not close. And uh, nobody's been more committed to their character than Stone Cold Steve Austin. Wow, Stone Cold made more money for the company than Hulk Hogan? Oh, uh, not close. Think about it. Hulk Hogan had how many shirts? One. Okay. Yeah. One shirt. Stone Cold had a different shirt every week. You know, Stone Cold every week, our marketing guys, uh, who who would they be sitting with? It was Stone Cold. It was The Rock. And then when Cena came along, it was Cena. At one point, Cena was selling 37 cents of every dollar that the WWE made on merchandise. That's a humongous number when you think about it. 37% of every dollar was John Cena. Uh, I would say that Stone Cold at one point um, was probably that much, but I'll never forget when he came out with a shirt, it said F spear on it, but the U in the F word was a skull and crossbones, and they started selling it, and it was the hottest selling shirt of all time. And I remember scratching my head, Roger, going, we're selling a T-shirt that says F spear, and apparently nobody realizes that it actually says F on it the F word, and we showed it on TV, and apparently the FCC didn't care because the U was a skull and crossbones. I never could figure it out, but it's still one of the hottest selling shirts of all time. <laughs> the Undertaker. He's the godfather. He's the boss. He runs the locker room. Um, I've never seen somebody cross him. Uh, if there was ever a discrepancy or an issue, uh, he would settle it, and people would move on. And I have to ask you about this guy because he was one of my all-time favorites, the Honky Tonk Man. <laughs> I've only been around him a couple of times, uh, but I was around him at WrestleMania. He got inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. And uh, super, super cool dude. Um, you know, a lot of the old-timers, uh, they just love coming around, even if it's once a year, because uh, they miss the business. When the business gets in your blood, you miss it. And you miss being on the road. Uh, and as much as you might complain about uh, the car rides and the hotels and all that, it gets in your blood. And Honky Tonk is one of those those guys that went from territory to territory um, and tried several different uh, characters until the Honky Tonk man stuck. So I really enjoyed him the couple times I've been around it. Hey, Coach, when you talk about all the days on the road, the rent-a-cars, the driving around, the, the, the flights to get to the next town – but when you're in the ring and the crowd's going nuts, does that all go out the window because a lot of these guys live for that moment? You, you don't even think about it. It's once the show starts and once uh, the crowd starts going, uh, all the aches, all the pain, all the BS, all of that goes away. And I'm telling you, it's, it, you know, I was in a Royal Rumble where I was there for 37 minutes. I took 33 chops and I walked to the back and I was like, this is the greatest feeling I've ever had until I walked into the shower and the shower hit my chest 
which was like sliced cheese, and all of a sudden I screamed like a little girl. <laughs> uh, but when you're out there, it, it, it's, that, that's why people do it. It's why, you know, there's, to this day, they do four shows a week. Every town has to be 175 miles apart. It's, so you're driving a minimum of 600 miles every single week. Who would do that 52 weeks a year unless you're just incredibly dedicated, you love the business, and I got burnt out the first time. That's why this time around I'm much smarter about it because I want to last until I'm 70. That's why I can't do every week anymore. Uh, but it, it's a very, very difficult way to live, and we try to be honest with the youngsters that come in now, and a lot of them will come to me because I'm the only one that's been able to do real sports and do WWE, and they'll ask for my advice, and I'm honest with them. And I'm, I, I say unless you're willing to put your personal life on hold, to put a lot of things on hold, you will never get to where you ultimately want to be in this business. It has to consume you. It has to be everything that you're about for the first several years that, that you are in it, or you cannot succeed. And, Coach, is the difference between a guy like a Shawn Michaels, who you mentioned was an incredible in-ring performer, or maybe Roddy Piper, who was so much fun to watch, and a guy who catapults into superstardom like The Rock, does that come down to, what does it come down to? Acting chops, charisma, combo platter, what is it? I think it's a combination of, of, of skill, of luck, of timing, where you're at. Uh, I think The Rock benefited from uh, social media starting uh, when he started his, his uh, uh, acting career. Nobody's used social media to their advantage more than The Rock. You also got to remember, the guys back in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, uh, they were on the road you know, 25 to 30 days a month. Uh, there was no going home. It was town, 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 Tuesday night, Wednesday night. That doesn't give you time to do anything else. And I think once Vince realized that he needed outside celebrities to be a part of WrestleMania, and then the guys, and there's only been a few, The Rock and maybe a couple of others, that have been able to walk into Hollywood or walk into ESPN like I did and not just be there for a cup of coffee, but to really belong, you, then you have to have really good people behind you that you keep going. Because if you stop, you're probably never going to get that chance again. But a lot of it's luck. A lot of his talent. If we were to focus group wrestling fans who come to see you guys in person, what's the number one reason fans come out to watch the WWE? I think the number one reason is they just want a break from their everyday life. Um, most people, most people have jobs that they just don't like. That's just the truth of the matter. And, I know I've been blessed to have this job. You know you're blessed to have the jobs that you have, but most people aren't. And that's the one thing I remember when I'm ever I'm meeting somebody that stops me in the airport or stops me here or stops me there. Most people are unhappy. And so when they have a chance to go out and watch guys that are, you know, are, you know, just like my favorite actors on TV, I enjoy sitting down and watching these guys and girls. And I think that's the reason that they come out to get a break from their everyday life but also to spend time with their family, which I love seeing kids come with their parents. Uh, I think those are the two biggest reasons uh, why, why people come. And they also wish that they could do it, too. What's more fun, to be a baby face or a heel? Oh, it's not close. A heel. <laughs> a heel. Uh, you know, it, it, you know it, it's one of those things that I, I've had people say, uh, 
many times, man, you were the greatest heel that ever turned for me to announce or ever. I love hearing that. Or I'll have somebody on Twitter that will insult me, and then I'll meet them, and they'll be like, hey, man, I hope, don't take offense, but, but I know you're, you're such a good heel that, that I want to be heel towards you and see how you react to me on Twitter. And I look at them, and I say, but I'm not a character on Twitter. That's really me. So don't try to be a heel to be yourself. Uh, but being a heel is great because if, if you can get the fans to boo you, the louder they boo you means the louder they're going to cheer for the baby face. And for six months after I started doing character stuff, they had me do ring announcing because of this reason that at house shows you wanted the baby face to win at the end of the show so the fans could always go home happy. That makes them want to come back the next time. If the heel wins at the end of the show, they don't feel good about themselves when they walk out of the building. So what I allowed people to do is allowed the heels to win, and then the baby faces would beat me up to end the show, and now everybody's happy. And I was honored to go through tables, and I was honored to get beat up because that allowed everybody, allowed heels to win more than they were winning, and it allowed people to go home happy. And ultimately, that's what it's all about. Well, I think everybody's going to go home happy after listening to this hour with the man they call the coach, Jonathan Coachman. I can't even tell you how much I appreciate all the extra time today. Thank you so much for making it. Loved going down and uh, talking about all this wrestling stuff with you. It was truly an honor to have you today. And, man, I hope to talk to you again very, very soon, my friend. Well, it's an honor to be on your show, as always, to be on your podcast. And uh, these are these are fun shows to do because you got a lot of time to discuss things uh, that people are interested in, and, and it's, it's been my life. So uh, it's an honor for you to be interested in it. And, and as always, I got uh, so much respect for you and the fans that listen to you. So uh, we'll see you on your radio show very soon. Coach, you're the best. Appreciate it as always, my friend. All right, see you. Be good. There he is. That's Jonathan Coachman checking into the Sports Lodge. Man, that guy's a lot of fun. I want to thank all of you for listening to the Sports Lodge podcast here on the Global Story Network. And don't forget, follow us at Global Story Net One. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at The Sports Lodge. So until next time, thanks so much for being here. I'm Roger Lodge. So long, everybody. The Sports Lodge with Roger Lodge was brought to you by the Global Story Network.